Let's get started. Open up to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, two weeks ago, I started uh, this chapter by not getting into the text, but giving you a diatribe on the second most talked about person in all of Scripture. The single most talked about person in all of Scripture, going back to Genesis, is the Messiah of Israel, Jesus the Christ the Son of Man, the Son of God, spoken about more than any other personage in the Scriptures. And the second most, we, we certainly would consider it worthy to study Him, but the second most is not the Son of God, not the Son of Man, but the Man of Sin, the Pseudo-Christ, the Antichrist. He too is introduced to us in the book of Genesis. And he too is spoken about throughout all of the scriptures. In the Torah, the law, the writings, the prophets of the Old Testament. He's spoken about in the New Testament gospels and in the New Testament epistles. And then we see him here in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 13 verse 1, he is the beast that comes out of the sea. And you say, well why in the world would you want to talk about Antichrist and spend two or three Sundays doing so in a church. We're gathered here to worship God. Well, to worship God is to study His Word. And the Bible says that blessed are those that rightly divide the Word of truth. Blessed are those that tremble before the whole Word of God. And blessed are those that teach and preach the whole counsel of God. So if it's in God's Word, it's worth studying. And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, true believers, not fake believers, there's plenty of those out there, not Catholics, not Jehovah. You know, we're not talking about Catholic Jesus in here, Mormon Jesus, or any of that nonsense. But if we're true believers, then the Bible teaches that Christ is going to rapture His church out of the world before the rise of Antichrist. In fact, the taking of the church out of the world is one of the things that must happen before Antichrist arises, and we'll talk about that later. But, even though the man himself is not on the scene today, his spirit runs rapid. 1 John warned us that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. He's the one that, it's the one that deceives. It's the one that possesses false teachers to lead people astray. And so the more we know about the man himself, the more we can recognize his spirit. The more we can exercise our senses to discern truth from error. Antichrist himself has not arisen. No, it's not Obama. Okay, Obama is a marionette in the hands of a demon puppet master. Just a marionette on a string. He's not the Antichrist. Obama's a far-right conservative compared to who the man of sin will be. Many there are in government, however, have the spirit of Antichrist, both Republican and Democrat. Spirit of Antichrist. Hillary Clinton is the spirit of Antichrist. Woe unto any Christian that would vote for that she-devil. Period. You sin against God if you do. Period. Um, I'm not saying you should vote for anyone. I'm not a politician. Politics won't fix this country. But those that justify the wicked and put them in leadership are the ones that are wicked themselves. That's what the Bible says in Proverbs. But the spirit of Antichrist is rampant and it's all over the world today. It's all in the church and it's preparing the world for the coming of the man of sin. So it would behoove us to study him so that we could recognize his spirit. 
And so before we actually get into the text, in this study in Revelation, we talked about the imitator, the white horse rider in Revelation 6. He comes bringing peace. And that peace He comes to bring is a judgment from God. Did you know that peace is sometimes a judgment from God when it's not real peace? True peace is peace with God, not with the world. And peace with God is only through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not through kumbaya and patty cakes playing with people that love sin and hate God. King Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament was a righteous king. He took a stand. He removed the idols, but he piled around. He buddied up with the wicked King Ahab of the northern kingdom because he wanted to love on him. And maybe that would bring him over to righteousness. And when, when Jehoshaphat came back to the land, God sent the prophet and asked him a question. said, should you love those that hate the Lord? Should you help those that hate God? And because you have, there's judgment come upon you. Now, Jehoshaphat didn't do what a lot of Christians today did, get his panties in a wad and blow a gasket and get mad and stop talking to the prophet. He actually listened, and then he went out and got right, and God blessed him, and He delivered him from an invasion. Told him, you just need to stand still with your people. You don't even need to fight this battle. I preached about this last Sunday night, so it's fresh on my mind. But um, uh, the spirit of Antichrist is deceived... Many already in the church. We need to be aware. Um, I didn't actually get into the text. He's an imitator, a white horse rider. He appears again here in Revelation as the beast up out of the sea. And so it behooves me to talk about him as an individual and look at some scriptures. He's all over the scriptures. If you got this handout last week, did anybody get a chance, or two weeks ago, did anybody get a chance to look at some of these scriptures? These are the main Scriptures that talk about the man of sin. You've got Daniel, the prophet Daniel, talks in depth about Antichrist. Paul talks about him, in 2 Thessalonians particularly, and then John talks about him here in Revelation. We also have him show up in the prophet Isaiah. We have him show up, uh, Jesus speaks about him in the Gospels. And we have him show up all over the Psalms. So before we actually into the test or the text of chapter 13 itself, it behooves me to uh, talk about Antichrist, the person. So two Sundays ago, I've entitled The Antichrist Part 1, and today is Part 2. There's some things about him that I didn't mention last time, and I didn't want to just repeat myself, although that's been two years ago when we were in Revelation chapter 6. But I do want to draw your attention to some facets of his character that get overlooked. Number one, we talked about last time, he first appears in the Bible in the same exact place that the Messiah is introduced, there in the Garden of Eden. The seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent is Jesus the Christ. The seed of the serpent is Antichrist himself. I also want to talk about his many names. He's alluded to throughout the Psalms, a place you wouldn't think to find him. He must be a Jew. Antichrist must be a Jew. We're going to talk about that. He's been on the earth once already. He's already been here before. Just like Jesus, when He comes back, He's been here before. It's interesting, one of the well-known political leaders of Israel that was instrumental back in its days when 
after it became a nation, it went through its period of wartime. He died uh, some time ago, but he had made a speech sometime before his death where he said, when Messiah does come to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom, if I'm here and if he will allow me, I want to ask him two questions. A famous uh, uh, Israeli politician, an army person, he said, I want to ask you, number one, have you been here before? And number two, can I look at your hands? Interesting. But Antichrist has been here before. Um, and then I want to talk about what must happen before he is revealed. And three tests that we can apply to ourselves. To ask ourselves. The Bible says, judge yourself and you won't be judged. Okay? Three tests that we can put ourselves to to see if we're ripe to be deceived or if we're protected from that spirit of deception. So last time I got into where he first appeared and I want to talk a little bit today about his names and we'll just see where it goes. Okay, Revelation 13. Now it's Mother's Day and we can praise God for mothers who have the gift of discernment. Sometimes... The women in our lives, men, have a gift of discernment about things that we fail to see because we're headstrong. And I'm thankful in my life that my wife, my mother, my grandmothers, my mother-in-law at times have had a gift of discernment to be more able to recognize the spirit of Antichrist than I was. So praise God that you have, if you have a godly mother in your life or a godly wife that recognizes truth from error. That's protection against the spirit of Antichrist. And that's a great gift. A lot of mothers have turned aside from the things of God and the things they taught to their children as children they don't teach to their grandchildren. There's an inconsistency there. I don't know what that is. I've been blessed in my life. I, I don't deserve it by any means. But uh, praise God for mothers who have the gift of discernment to recognize truth from error. Praise God for that. But we're going to talk about the spirit of Antichrist who, in a sense, is the mother of all whores and harlots, the spirit of Babylon. So we're going to come at mothership or motherhood a little bit different angle today. Uh, but we do praise God for our mothers and we praise God for a godliness in the helpmeet that knows and can discern truth from evil. But Revelation 13 verse 1 Somebody told me I needed to be animated today because, so they could stay awake. I'm going to try to be animated. John said, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. This is the beast out of the sea. The, set, the sixth of the seven main characters of the tribulation. We're in this parenthesis that highlights the war, the hatred between the dragon and between the, the, the woman or the, the seed of Israel. And we're in the war's earthly campaign now. The heavenly campaign's over. The devil's been kicked out of heaven. And he's angry. And the commander-in-chief in this war on the devil's side is the beast. The beast out of the sea. Having seven heads and ten horns, just like the dragon. Just like the dragon. Seven heads and ten horns connected to <clears throat> Satan himself. And upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the names of blasphemy. The spirit of Antichrist may speak peace, love, 
and equality, but it is the name of blasphemy against a holy God who is jealous and will have no other share His glory with none other. This beast out of the sea is the same who is called the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3. The very beginning of the Bible, seed of the serpent, here at the Bible, the beast out of the sea. But he's also called some other things. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition. It's interesting that Jesus also calls someone the son of the perdition. Someone possessed by a devil himself, not a demon. We'll talk about that later. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul also calls him that wicked, that wicked one. The wicked. Not wicked, but the wicked. Or that wicked. Isaiah calls him the Assyrian. The Assyrian. The king of Babylon. The spoiler. The branch of the terrible ones. Isn't it the prophets that call Jesus a righteous branch? A righteous branch? Inside joke. Antichrist is the branch of the terrible ones. Ezekiel 21, he's the profane and wicked prince of Israel. Remember that, prince of Israel. He's wicked and profane. Daniel 7 and 8, he's the little horn. Daniel 9, the prince that shall come. Daniel 11, a vile person. Vile. Yes, there are vile people in this world. Paul says in Romans that sodomites are vile. Homosexuals are vile. What they do is vile. I didn't write it. Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Jesus appeared to Paul and sent him in all the world. I don't care what the world says. Daniel 11 also calls him the willful king. He does whatever he wants. You know what religion it is that says do whatever you want? Satanism. Satanism, the satanic Bible penned by Anton LaVey, its main theme is do what thou wilt. That's Satanism. It's not bowing down to a red creature with horns and a pitchfork. It's do what you want to do. And the embodiment of that is Antichrist, the willful king. The one world religion of the last days is not going to be Islam. It's going to be Luciferianism. The worship of Satan. Do whatever you want. And that's exactly what we're living in today. Freedom of speech unless it's exactly the way we want you to be. You, you don't only have to recognize the wickedness we do, you have to do it to be accepted. Do whatever you want. The willful king. Zechariah 11, he's the idle shepherd. Not the good shepherd, but the idle shepherd. We'll see later here in Revelation, he's called the vine of the earth. And Messiah Himself takes that sickle and cuts down that vine, just like we would cut down a weed. And then Revelation 9 calls Him the angel of the bottomless pit. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to Him as the unclean spirit. Not a or an unclean spirit, but the unclean spirit. And then finally in John 5, He is the one who comes in His own name. Those are just a few of the names of Antichrist. And they tell us a lot about His character. They tell us a lot about His spirit. An attitude that says, I'll do what I want. That's the spirit of Antichrist. 
An, an attitude that, uh, that is idle. An idle mind is the spirit of Antichrist. An attitude that's earthly and attached to the earth that engages in uncleanliness and calls it godliness. These things are the spirit of Antichrist. Now these last three, the angel of the bottomless pit, the unclean spirit, and he that comes in his own name, I want to touch on more specifically as we try to identify this person. But there's some other names you'll find in the Psalms. In the Psalms he appears. He's called the bloody and deceitful man. Bloody people who enjoy bloodshed, particularly those of the innocent, are the spirit of Antichrist. Okay? Abortion doctors, women that murder their unborn babies, they're bloody and deceitful just like Antichrist. And if a woman has an abortion and the law, if she breaks the law in doing so, should she be punished? Absolutely. She's not a victim. Unless somebody put a gun to your head and marched you into a clinic and put you on a table and said, abort this baby, you're not a victim if you abort your child. You're a murderer. And woe unto the doctor that convinced you otherwise. Bloody and deceitful. That's the spirit of Antichrist. He's the wicked one. Psalm 10. He's the man of the earth. Vine of the earth in Revelation. Man of the earth in the Psalms. He's the mighty man. The enemy. The adversary. The violent man. There are subtle references to him throughout the Psalms. And these subtle references are interesting. Just like we say subtle references to Messiah himself in the Psalms. The Scriptures emphasize three principal relationships with regard to Antichrist. Number one is his relationship to the Gentiles or his relationship to the world. This is primarily what John in Revelation and Paul describe. That's how they present Antichrist in terms of his relationship to the Gentiles. The second way in which He is revealed to us is in terms of His relationship to apostate Israel. When you look at Antichrist as introduced in Isaiah and Daniel, it's as in terms of His relationship with the apostate Jew who has rejected God, who has rejected God's Word and rejected His Messiah. And then thirdly, He's presented in terms of His relationship to the Jewish remnant to the remnant out of Israel that will be persecuted by Him. And this is what is emphasized in the Psalms. When we see Antichrist in the Psalms, we see Him prophetically in terms of how He goes after the remnant of Israel. And how Israel in that time of distress calls upon God, calls upon the Lord to deliver them. You see, in this last days, much of Israel will bow down at the feet of Antichrist and they will consider Him to be the Messiah, as will many people that go to church on Sunday mornings in America today. But there will be a remnant in Israel, at least 144,000. They were introduced to us in Revelation 7. It's told that a third of those dwelling in the land at the time will be the remnant. And Isaiah says a tenth of those dwelling in the world would be the remnant. These are the ones that will separate themselves from the apostate Judaism that worships Antichrist. And they will be the victims of His pursuit. The pursuit of the dragon. We've already seen that in chapter 12. But the Psalms reveal 
Antichrist in his relationship with the remnant of Israel. Okay? So it's three different relationships that are revealed in Scripture. Okay? Notice that there is no relationship revealed between Antichrist and the church in terms of the person of Antichrist. The relationship with the church is the spirit of Antichrist. And when Paul reveals him in 2 Thessalonians, he distinguishes between us who have escaped the wrath of God and those that will fall under the judgment that comes. In the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, they have a definite prophetic character. We know this because Jesus and the apostles quoted the Psalms in their prophetic character. Many times the psalmist, whether it's David or the sons of Korah or Asaph or Moses or Solomon, the psalmist experiences and uh, his experiences and his sufferings set forth in the context in which he wrote are a type or a prophetic picture of Messiah's sufferings. When David wrote about his sufferings in Psalm 22, by the mouth of the Holy Ghost, he was prophesying in detail the sufferings that would come upon Messiah. David wrote in 1000 BC that Messiah would be pierced in his hands and his feet. That was a prophecy, a prophetic character. David in his own experience was as if he had been pierced, but he spoke prophetically by the mouth of the Holy Ghost. Now the Romans wouldn't invent crucifixion as a torture for the common criminal for another 250 to 300 years after David wrote that. Proof that the Bible is of a supernatural origin. Psalm 16 speaks of the death and burial and the resurrection of Messiah. Psalm 40, 41, 45, 69. These are examples of messianic psalms that prophetically point to Jesus Christ. Types, those that wrote the psalmist. Antitypes, like Messiah. Shadow fulfillments, ultimate fulfillments. Remember our discussion on the nature of Old Testament prophecy? It always has a dual fulfillment, an immediate shadow fulfillment that points to an ultimate fulfillment. John the Baptist was an example of that in the forerunner that would precede Messiah. Okay, The child of Isaiah, Maher Shalahashbaz was an example of what would be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, born of a virgin. Same thing happens with Antichrist in the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms begin with the psalmist's feelings, his doubts, his questions, and his emotions, but these are then followed by his beliefs, what he knows to be true. Pay attention to that when you read the Psalms. The Psalms a lot of times start out with complaints. And then there's a moment where the, where the psalmist realizes, wait a minute, I know what truth is. I know the end of the matter. Praise God. So enough of our whining. Let's follow the example of the psalmist. Look at Psalm 11. This is one of the best examples of the folly of stopping too quick in the Scriptures. Psalm 11.3, we have heard this quoted so many times in our woe is me, poor us, look at what's happening in America all around us, what are we to do? Psalm 11.3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
That's the question of the psalmist. He's doubting. He's grieving. He's crying out to God. And it's a question, what can we do? The foundations of our country have been destroyed. What can we do? The answer is verse 4 and 5. Here's the answer. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hates. The wicked one. It's a reference to Antichrist. The foundations are being destroyed. But God's on His throne. And He hates the wicked one. And He hates those that love violence. And He'll put an end to it. Chill out. So we have feelings followed by what we know to be true. When we pray, let's cry out to God like the psalmist. But let's not forget what the Word of God says and let's rest in it. Psalm 13, right there on the same page. The first four verses, David is complaining about God forgetting him. Woe is me! How long uh, will I have sorrow in my heart? Lord, will You not hear me? Will You not wake me up? My enemy is going to prevail against me. And then there's a turning point. Verse 5 and 6, he counters his feelings with his beliefs. But I have trusted in Thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in Thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. We fight our feelings. We battle and counter our feelings with what we know to be true. The Word of God. And that's what Israel, the remnant, will be forced to do in the days of tribulation when it looks like they're going to be put to an utter end. Like the psalmist, they'll have to remember God's promises and trust in them. These are examples of how the Psalms work. Feelings countered by belief. Truth, experience does not determine truth. But truth ought to be what determines how we handle experience or interpret experience. The spirit of Antichrist wants you to rely on your feelings. What feels right. The spirit of Christ is you to trust in what's been written. What is right? You remember when we talked about the seven churches in Revelation, the things that are, the present church age. These were actual churches, Ephesus and Smyrna and uh, uh, Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and, and, and Laodicea. These were actual churches in John's day that had actual problems that John was addressing. There are also types of churches that exist at all times. We have Laodicean churches today. We have Ephesus churches that have those characteristics. But they had a prophetic uh, side as well. And we can see that living on this side of history, looking back over 2,000 years of church history. These were a prophetic picture of the church age. A map of the days beginning with Pentecost until the rapture. So that the church in general will be the spirit of Laodicea. Laodicea means rights of the people when Christ comes back. When the church age ends, it ends at a time when the church is all about the rights of the people. Is that where we are today? Yeah, absolutely. It's not what God wants, it's what we want. The rights of the people. It's the same thing with the Psalms. These are actual experiences and events 
Some of them, if you go back to the beginning of the Psalms, if you get to Psalm 3, uh, David wrote that when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. So there was a context there. If you go over to uh, uh, Psalm 7, it was written in response to the wicked accusations that Cush the Benjaminite levied at David when he left the city and fleed. So there were specific actual events that spurred them. But the Psalms are also types of the struggles that people who fear God have faced and will face in this life. They're types. We've seen the Psalms and prayed the Psalms in our own struggles, but they also have a prophetic character. Just like the seven churches map for us the church age, the Psalms, many of them map for us Israel in the tribulation. The remnant of Israel crying out to God for deliverance from the man of sin. That's what we see in the Psalms. And that's why Antichrist is there. Psalm 102 is a perfect example of this. Psalm 102. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Okay, it's a prayer. When you're afflicted and you're overwhelmed, pour out this prayer unto the Lord. It was an afflicted man that wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But who ultimately is the afflicted that will pour out their complaint unto the Lord, prophetically speaking? It's the woman who has fled into the wilderness. Israel in the tribulation. How do we know this? Look at verse 16. This is all going to happen. This cry will be made. In the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in His glory. So the context is the last days when the Lord appears in Zion and builds up His glory. When He does this, verse 17, He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Who is the destitute? Verse 18, This shall be written for or concerning the generation to come. And the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. This is pointing to a generation that will praise the Lord in Israel, that will be ultimately destitute, that will cry out, and when they do, Messiah will come in Zion and set up His glory. So this tells us of the prophetic character. It's written for a generation to come. So we see this in, in the Psalms. What's interesting is if you go to a Jewish synagogue today, or in Israeli culture, Jewish culture, the psalms in the synagogue are often they're sung every time they meet. They're recited. They're prayed. When they hold their prayer books and they pray at the Western Wall, rocking back and forth, you know they do that so they, they're so afraid they might fall asleep, and you know they can't do that, so they got to rock back and forth. It does look ridiculous, um, but they're praying the psalms. Those prayer books are psalms. So they're very familiar with these Scriptures. But they have little understanding that their own judgment is being pronounced upon themselves when they read this. They have no understanding when they read these. But there's coming a time when there's a remnant in Israel after the church has been taken out of the world. The woman who flees into the wilderness to a place prepared for her. There's coming a time when Him who is on the housetop that must flee 
or those in the field who must run. There's coming a time for the elect of the nation of Israel that they, these psalms will one day mean something. These psalms will be their very specific cries to the Lord. Cries to Messiah. There's a prophetic side. It's amazing how the Jewish people have been blessed by God and they have so many talents and abilities in so many areas of life that excel other nations and other peoples except one area. In one area, they, I don't, they're dumber than anybody else. And that's the ability to understand the Scriptures. Just a fact. Of course, we're all dumb in the Scriptures until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. You know, we got people in the church today that are so dumb in the Scriptures, I don't know how they can be smart in anything else in life. I wouldn't trust them to change a, an oil filter on my car if that's the way they think. But no one can understand the Scriptures until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. But everything is laid out so plainly, but because of their blindness, because they've rejected Messiah, they can't see it. Now, God's always had a remnant in Israel. They're, praise God, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, Jewish Brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, there was always a remnant in David's day, Solomon's day, Jesus' day. There always will be. And there's coming a time when the remnant will be the nation itself because the whole nation will be saved. God's not forsaken His promises to Israel. He intends to fulfill them. But one day these psalms that completely go over the head of people in the synagogues today will mean something because it will be the very prayer they pray out to God. Now, it's interesting how Israel's judgment over the years, we should think about this. You know, they read these Scriptures and they recite them as if they mean something and their judgment is pronounced upon them. And in reading them and reciting them, they're pronouncing their own judgment. Oftentimes, we pronounce our own judgment in our lives and then we blame God for it. If you look at the Old Testament, look at how Israel pronounced its own judgment. Turn to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Here's a lesson for us in sharing Christ with the lost and the way Joshua handles the people of Israel. He has exhorted them. He's given them his last charge. He knows his days are up. They've conquered the land. And Joshua warns them about turning from the Lord. And they're like, no, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to follow the Lord. Verse 19 of chapter 24, Joshua said unto the people, you can't serve the Lord. You cannot serve the Lord, for He's a holy God. He's a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. So what does Joshua try to do? He tries to talk these people out of making a foolish oath. He tries to talk them out of it so as to test their mettle, to test whether they really are serious. When we share the gospel with someone, a lost friend or a family member, and they talk about wanting to get saved or all of this, I encourage you to try to talk them out of it. If you can't talk them out of it, then their heart's right. They're genuine. If they can easily be talked out of it, they don't want to. They just want to feel good. A little, little, little emotional attachment there. Nothing serious. Joshua goes on to say in verse 20, If you forsake the Lord, if you serve strange gods, then He will turn and do you hurt and consume you after He hath done you good. What did the people say? Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And in promising to serve the Lord, they pronounced on judgment. They accepted the warning that Joshua gave them and realized and accepted that if we turn, we'll be punished. 
They pronounce their own judgment. By committing themselves to God, they pronounce their own judgment that would come upon them when they turn from Him. When you give your heart or claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you pronounce your own judgment upon yourself for the day that comes when you turn away from Him. You've judged yourself. Church hadn't judged you. The church hadn't turned its back on you. You've pronounced your own judgment yourself when you have claimed to give yourself to Christ. When you say, I'm going to follow Christ, you're acknowledging that those who turn away receive the judgment of God. You've judged yourself by claiming to be a follower. There are many that are in the church today or, or claim to have once been a Christian and they're offended and they go off and they go off and live in sin and then they justify it by saying the church has turned its back on me. Poor me. It's the church's fault I'm living like a homosexual. It's the church's fault that I'm living in adultery. It's the church's fault that I don't care about the things of God. If you claim the name of Christ, I'm not talking about lost people who don't know any better. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those that claim a Christ. When you come into the family of God by claiming the name of Christ, you pronounce your own judgment. And the judgment is, you claim the name of Christ, you're one of us. You forsake the name of Christ, you've forsaken God, and God commands the church to forsake you. The Bible says you claim the name of Christ and turn your back on God then the church is supposed to turn its back on you. Period. If you don't like it, lump it. I didn't write it, God did. So these people out here that are justifying their sin because the church has turned their back on them, church did exactly what it was supposed to do if they claimed the name of Christ. The Bible says to turn them over to Satan so that they can be brought to a place of repentance. I know that's hard truth and I know that wouldn't be preached in most pulpits today. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to be a friend. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to be a friend. But these things are not an excuse. You pronounce your own judgment when you come to Christ. You have nobody to blame but yourself if you walk away from Him. It proves that what you claim to be never was true. And the church, by God's command, is to turn you over with the hopes that you can be saved and brought to a place of true repentance. It was the same thing with Israel. Look at Numbers chapter 14. It's funny, Israel wants to blame God for the Holocaust. Just like Roman Catholics want to blame God for this or somebody wants to blame God if somebody dies or gets hurt. It's always been that way. Blame God. Cain wanted to blame God for what would happen to him if he was turned out into the wilderness. Numbers 14 Israel has gone and spied out the land and they didn't like what they saw. They'd seen God deliver them from Pharaoh. They saw God give them water and food in the wilderness, but all of a sudden they see people a little taller than they are and they're scared to death. And they said to Moses, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt to die there? Now we're going to die out here in this desert. Because of you, we're going to die in this desert. Well, they pronounce their own judgment. God didn't say, you said we're going to die in the desert, so, okay, it's going to happen. But Revelation, I mean, uh, Numbers 14, 28, God says, He responds, saying to them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. You spoke it, so now it's going to happen. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, 
and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward which have murmured against me. Doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Joshua the son of Nun. Caleb and Joshua are the only two that believe the Lord. The rest of them pronounce their own judgment. And Moses, Miriam, and Aaron would all die with them in the wilderness. Be careful when we murmur against the Lord. When we murmur against Him, we pronounce our own judgment. And that which comes out of our own mouth will come upon us and it won't be anybody's fault but our own. Praise God, He's a merciful God. Our own judgment never negates His eternal promises. Israel's judgment in the wilderness, Israel's judgment throughout history has never negated the promises God made to Abraham. The church's judgment has never negated the promise that God would build His church, Jesus would build His church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. When we go to the New Testament, we see Israel pronounce its own judgment upon itself in regard to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He came to save it. Israel pronounced its judgment upon itself. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Jesus didn't have to go around announcing to everybody that He was the Messiah. They should have known He was. It was obvious in the Scriptures. When, we, when He's tried before the high priest in Matthew chapter 26, it says um, in verses 63 and 64, He's being accused by all of these accusations and the high priest said, why don't you answer? Verse 63, but Jesus held His peace. And the high priest answered and said unto Him, I adjure you, in other words, I command you by the living God that you tell us whether or not you be the Christ. That means Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said, Thou sayest. In other words, you've said it. You've pronounced the judgment that comes by rejecting me on yourself. You just said it. You just said, Messiah, the Son of God. Thou sayest, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I will say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus quoted the most messianic psalm in all of the Old Testament that the Jews recognize as clearly referring to Messiah. It's in the book of Daniel chapter 7. He had proved himself to be Messiah written about in the Old Testament time and time again through his mighty works. But they pronounced their own judgment. It was the high priest that called him Messiah. He didn't have to say it. And their rejection brought the judgment that came from not acknowledging. Uh, the rejection brought the judgment or the consequences of not believing what they should have known. Matthew 27. Look at the judgment the people pronounce upon themselves. Pilate was like, I can't find anything wrong with this man. He's done nothing wrong. I am not going to be guilty of his blood. And then what did the people say in verse 25? His blood be on us and our children. Sad. It was. People want to blame God for the Holocaust. Israel pronounced it upon themselves. Now, woe unto those who are the instruments of that. They all died and are, and are gone and they're perishing in hell. Woe to the wicked Nazi regime. Woe to those that hate the Jews and hate Israel. God told Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Woe to this country that would turn its back on Israel. But Israel pronounced its judgment upon itself. 
Now, when we were in Israel, I ran into this Jewish man at an archaeological site, and he was obviously a tour guide, and he was giving a tour to a Jewish family from America. And he just saw us wandering around and was like, you guys don't have a tour guide in a place like this or a guide? I said, no, nah, we don't need one. We've got the guidebook right here. We've been here before. And he's like, yeah, but there's a lot of good information you may miss. I hate for you to miss out on it. And I said, well, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, we'll try our best. And he just kind of laughed. Well, a few days later, there really wasn't an opportunity to talk to him more. We saw him down at Masada with a group from America. And I heard them talking behind us, and I heard him talking about the Holocaust. You know, if I, you know, really, I'm to the place in my life where if there really is a God of Israel, then why would he have allowed the Holocaust? You know, I just can't believe there's a God. And I've heard that so many times that, you know, it just makes my head spin. That's what people say here in America today. Like, if there's, so, if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world, even though they've never tasted persecution or evil or sufferings that people have in other countries? But I, when I heard that, I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, I'll speak to him if you give me an opportunity for him to be alone. I don't want to interrupt his tour group. So Masada was closing, and I was thinking about how I was going to go about this. I had two ways I could go. Number one, sir, I think I have an answer to your question. Your people pronounced that judgment upon themselves when they stood before Pilate. They said, His blood be on us and our children. And so God just honored the word of your people and gave you what you requested. And that's why the Holocaust came. Have you ever read Deuteronomy 29? It's exactly, I mean, it's pretty to a T. But I thought, I might not be received too well. I want to be wise as a serpent. So the Lord brought to mind the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. How Joseph being righteous and above reproach in every way, a little bit arrogant, a little bit prideful, but righteous and above reproach, suffered for crimes he didn't commit. Didn't even come close to committing. His brother sold him into slavery. He was accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife when it was her that was trying to go after him. He spent time in prison. He interpreted the dreams of, 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 of Pharaoh's servants and they forgot about him and he just was wallowing in prison. I think it was 17 years. Maybe it was 13. 13 years. In which he probably wondered, where's God? But in the end, God rose Joseph up to be the instrument to not only save the people of Egypt in a time of famine, but to preserve the seed of Israel in the earth so that Jacob and his sons could come down and dwell in Egypt. And in Egypt, God multiplied them into a nation and began to fulfill the promise. And so when Joseph was confronted with his brothers and they recognized who he was in that position of authority, Joseph said, what you or what man meant for evil... God used for good. And so we can remember that. Instead of blaming God for man's evil, think about how God uses it for good. And so when I approached this man, I said, look, you know, we're the ones without the tour guide. Do you remember us? He's like, oh yeah, now you're here without a tour guide? And I said, yeah. And I said, look, I couldn't help but overhear you up on top of Masada saying that you, know, you don't believe in God anymore because you don't understand how there could be a God since there was a Holocaust. And I said, I think I might have an answer to your question, if you'll hear me. He's like, sure. I said, do you remember in the Torah the person of Joseph? And then I, you know, one of your ancestors. And I went through it and I said, you know, talked about how Joseph saw that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And I said, my friend, don't blame God for what man meant for evil. 
I said, if you think about it, had there been no Holocaust, there would be no modern state of Israel. You wouldn't be here today giving tours in a Jewish country to Jewish people without fear of persecution if it hadn't been from the Holocaust. The Holocaust, more than anything else, led to the establishment of the Jewish state. So be careful what you blame God for. And then he just went on to say, I'm really glad that you guys have peace. I wish I could have it. And I said, well, the Messiah of Israel is the one who can give it. So I said the same thing, but I said it in a way that wasn't so in your face. But we often pronounce our own judgment. And when we have these things in our lives, we need to ask ourselves, is this because we open our big fat mouths and murmur against God? The answer is to humble ourselves and repent, just like Israel, the remnant, will do in the period of tribulation, just like what is reflected in the Psalms. There are many allusions or references to the Antichrist throughout the Psalms. Psalms 5, Psalm 10 give us detailed character sketches of the man of sin. You may want to study these sometimes. Psalm 52, it ultimately points to Antichrist. It's a rebuke of the Antichrist from the mouths of the ones he's persecuting. It shows a righteous contempt for wicked leaders that we ourselves should have. How do we handle or deal with wicked leaders like we have in our country today? Turn to Psalm 52. The remnant of Israel rises up and rebukes the man of sin. It's a lesson for us. A rebuke for the spirit of Antichrist. Righteous contempt. Look at verse 1. Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? Why are you boasting, Antichrist? The goodness of God endures continually. Look at verse 5. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. That's the exact same language that's talked about the destruction of Antichrist in Daniel. Plucked. Plucked out. Broken without hand. A rebuke. That's the righteous contempt we should have with our when they shove this garbage down our throat. Why are you boasting, Republican, Democrat? Why are you boasting? The goodness of God endures far beyond your lifetime. God's going to destroy you, you, you wicked devil. He's going to destroy you forever and take you away and pluck you out of your seat of political power. Pluck you right out of Washington. You won't be able to do anything about it unless you repent. I think we should speak these things. The remnant of Israel does. Pray for our leaders. Pray for their judgment. Pray that if they won't repent, God will overthrow them in a moment. Just like the remnant does. We're to pray for those in authority. But there's ways to pray. Pray that they'll repent. Pray if they don't, God will stop them and uproot them. It says in the New Testament, we're to pray for those in authority. The Psalms tell us how to. It's kind of like in, 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 in martial arts context, we play around a little bit with the, the sword. Not because we want to fight with the sword or defend against the sword. I have more chance of winning the lottery without buying a lotto ticket than I do getting attacked by a sword. People just don't use them anymore. But we play around with it because it teaches us principles and teaches us how to move. And in the Japanese art of Aido, when you draw the sword and you make the attack and you go for the kill, at the end of it, you always take a step forward toward your opponent. 
It's to show them that you're not afraid, that you're the victor, not them. A step forward. And I think in many ways, the example here of the righteous crying out against their wicked leaders is a step forward. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you, Obama. I'm not afraid of you, Republicans and communists and sodomites and trans... I'm not afraid of you. God is good. He rules, and He will destroy you unless you repent. It's that Aido step forward. We need to be like that. We need to be bold. Not taking up swords and fighting, but speaking truth and not being afraid. Psalm 55. The remnant in the wilderness fled from the false Messiah who betrays them and broke His treaty of friendship against them. That's the cry of Psalm 55 prophetically fulfilled in the days of Antichrist. 74, you see Israel scattered by the wrath of the beast. And it says, at that moment, all the synagogues are burned up in the land. Psalm 74 has to have a prophetic character. Because when that was written, there were no synagogues in the land. Synagogues arose up after the Babylonian activity. But there's coming a day when all the synagogues we see in Israel today will be burned up in the land. And the remnant will flee and cry out to God. It's the remnant in tribulation. Psalm 140 is ultimately fulfilled in Israel's cry to God to deliver them from Antichrist. It says in Psalm 140, Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man. Preserve me from the violent man. That's who Antichrist is. The evil man. The violent man. That's who the spirit of Antichrist is. He may appear as an angel of light, but in truth he's evil and violent. Abortion and the abortion industry in this country may appear convenient. It may appear to be about women's health, but it's bloody and violent. And if you won't see that, you're willfully blind and ignorant. You're willfully blind. There's nothing that can be done for you but the mercy of God. These cries to God to deliver them will lead the remnant to finally acknowledge and repent of their offense. What is Israel's offense? They rejected their Messiah. These judgments will cause them to cry out to God and acknowledge their sin. And when they acknowledge their sin and cry out for Yeshua, for Jesus, it says in Hosea, He'll come and He will deliver them. These prayers will be answered for Israel. Just as they were answered for the persons that wrote them. Just as they are answered for us in our lives. Maybe not in the way we think they should be. Maybe not in our time frame. But I've never been able to look back over my life at a period of deep distress and sometimes years down the road maybe. But I'm not able to look back and see where God didn't answer me. He did. And He'll do that for Israel. He will come and deliver them. They will recognize Yeshua as Mashiach and He won't come until they do. Hosea 5. Psalm 37, Psalm 44, Psalm 50, Psalm 72, etc. These are all prophetically fulfilled through Israel in the days of tribulation. And Antichrist makes His appearance. So we can learn a lot about the character of the spirit of Antichrist and how God delivers us from that spirit if we'll cry out to Him. And pray as the psalmist prayed. Many allusions in the Psalms. Something we didn't talk about last time. 
Another point I want you to see about this beast out of the sea. Antichrist will be a Jew. He will ethnically be a Jew. Turn to 1 John 2. I've got a few minutes here. We usually go to 1230. Matthew 1. Uh, probably won't do that today. 1 John chapter 2. We've looked at these verses. Verse 18, Little children, it is the last time, and you have heard that Antichrist, Antichrist the man, shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know it is the last time. Who are Antichrists, according to John? Who are the spirit of Antichrist? Verse 19, they went out from us. They started with us. They looked like us. But they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. Verse 22, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus is the Mashiach. Jesus is God. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. This word here, Antichrist, in the original language of the New Testament has a double meaning. It means anti and it also means pseudo. Antichrist is not just the opposer of Christ, he's the imitator of Christ. That word anti in the Greek can mean instead of. We have an example of this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I mentioned this the last time when I talked about Antichrist in Revelation 6, but it's been almost three years ago, maybe. So you might have forgotten. 1 Corinthians 11.15, we have this same uh, word, anti, here. But a wo- if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is giving, given her anti for a covering. Paul's talking about the importance of women covering their heads and some people read this scripture and say a woman's got to have a shawl or a hat on in church. And you know, if you don't do that, you're not saved and all kinds of messed up doctrine even though the Bible says right there that Paul's just giving a recommendation. He doesn't have a custom and he tells them to judge for themselves what's right. But here in verse 15 it says that the woman's hair is given her instead of a covering. The hair of a woman, the long hair of a woman is in place of the covering. It is the covering. Anti instead. So you can think of Antichrist as instead of Christ. So yes, he is the opposer, but he's also the imitator. In fact, if we look at his reign, his revelation and his reign, he starts out as a great imitator to deceive the world and Israel. And then he becomes an opposer of Israel. A pseudo-Messiah, an anti-Messiah. And there's a dividing line at which he changes. And it's the midpoint of the tribulation when he turns his back on Israel. But there's something that will cause him to move from imitator to opposer. To move from disguise to taking off the mask and revealing who he really is. There's an event. We're going to see it here in Revelation 13. Something that happens. I believe. We'll talk about that later. But He will be a counterfeit Messiah that the Jews will receive. 
Okay? In Daniel chapter 9, the great 70 weeks prophecy, it says that Antichrist will confirm the covenant with Israel for a week. He will confirm a covenant. They will agree to a covenant with Him. And in the middle of the week, the seven year period, He's going to break it. So they will receive Him. Can you imagine the Jews receiving anybody as a Messiah that's not Jewish? Come on. There's greater, there's greater chance of a cat giving birth to a dog. It's not going to happen. You don't know the history of Israel. But Jesus, in this vein, speaks of Antichrists. John 5. And He speaks it against the Jewish people who have rejected His witness. John chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus is telling them, you know, they're accusing Him of not being crazy. And He's saying, search the Scriptures. You're appealing to Moses. Moses gave testimony of Me. Search the Scriptures. You think you have eternal life, but they, they are they which testify of Me. And then He goes on in verse 43 and says, I come in My Father's name. I came in your God's name. And you receive Me not. He's speaking to the Jews. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus says that there's coming a day when another will come in his own name and you're going to receive him as Messiah. But you've rejected me. I came in the Father's name. Now it's interesting. This is another one of those places where you look at the original language, you see something interesting. That word another here in John 5.43, there's a couple of different words in Greek that can be translated that. You've got one... uh, There's no point in me pronouncing Greek language from here. It's just no point. But the word used here means another of the same genus or the same kind. doesn't mean a different kind. There's another word in Greek that can be translated another. It's where we get the word hetero from. It's eteros. Hetero. Heterosexual. Different. Men and women are different. A heterosexual is one that is attracted to a different sex. Homosexual is not even a proper word. It implies that it's genetic. It's not genetic. Your genes become tainted when your heart is bent on doing evil. But you're not born with a propensity to evil that you can do absolutely nothing about. You know, without God and His grace, we can do nothing about it. But when we come to Christ, He delivers us from sin. I'm sick of people saying, well, I'm born this way, I can't help it. I was born with a spirit of pride. I care about no one but myself. That's what I was born with. Does it give me an excuse to care about no one but myself? Man, if I said that and used the logic that the Sodomites used, I'd be stoned probably in this country. But we're all born. Some of us are born for the bottle. Born for the alcohol. We can't say no to it, but God delivers. It's not an excuse. Being born with a tendency or having a desire to do something is not an excuse before God. Because God can deliver from any sin if you'll cry out to Him. But you won't cry out to Him because you don't want to be delivered from it. Heteros. That's not the word used here. It's the word of the same kind. Jesus is saying that another one that's the same kind as me, of the same stock, is going to come and you're going to receive Him. What does that mean? He's of the same... Who was Jesus the stock of? Abraham. 
There's one that's coming that's also of the stock of Abraham, a Jew. You're going to believe him when he comes in his own name. Antichrist will be enough of an imitator that he will deceive the nation of Israel into signing a treaty and they will think he is their Messiah. How in the world could or would Israel follow one who is not a Jew? Now Muslims, Catholics, Buddhists, they see a mighty man working miracles, they're going to rush to be on his side. It doesn't matter if he's Jewish or not. But the Jewish people won't follow a Messiah that's not a Jew. Just won't do it. If Antichrist is truly going to deceive Israel, he must be a Jew. And I believe the Scriptures confirm this elsewhere. Now, it's funny to me how I don't care about politics, but apparently the Republican primaries have been decided now. And we know who the nominee is. And as soon as that was decided, people that hated him and were talking all kinds of evil about him all of a sudden rushing to kiss up to him. That's what the world does. You can talk, talk, but when your heart is bent on doing evil, when the evil you speak against comes, you're going to rush and bow down to it. The same people that look at those of us who believe the Word of God and call us pharisaical and we're all about the love. Oh, they are about the love. They're going to bow down with their face on the earth to Antichrist. They'll be deceived. Because they only care about themselves. But a Jew... Jews not going to follow a Messiah that's not Jewish. If we look at Ezekiel chapter 28, we have a, a, a lament against... The first ten verses are against the prince of Tyrus. Verses 11 through 19 are against the king of Tyrus. Now when we read in Ezekiel 28, we know who the king of Tyrus is. It's Satan himself. Just go read it. There's no other one this could be. Well, if Satan is the king of Tyre, then who is the prince of Tyre that's being spoken about in the first ten verses? Prophetically, it's no one other than Antichrist. The king is Satan the dragon. His prince is Antichrist. We all know the second half of that chapter to be talking about Satan. We forget about the first uh, uh, few verses there, verse, first ten verses. Now, what's interesting is when the prince of Tyrus is being rebuked. Verse 10, Thou, the prince of Tyrus, shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of the strangers, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Antichrist will die the death of uncircumcision. Now, why would that even be said unless the prince of Tyrus is circumcised himself? It wouldn't make any sense. Who are the people that still circumcised after, after almost uh, 4,000 years of human history? The Jews. They've always done that. That's the sign of the covenant. In fact, the Jewish rite of circumcision that's been going on since the days of Abraham, uh, 1800 B.C., is proof that evolution is false. You can't introduce something into a species and it happened enough times that it just comes automatically. Jewish people have been circumcising their children for 4,000 years and Jewish male babies are still born with a foreskin. Hadn't changed anything. And yet evolutionists want us to believe if something changes a little bit or is forced to change or a bird loses a wing, then eventually the wing won't be there and there will be a lizard or something. Or vice versa. I don't even know what the order is. It's so ridiculous. doesn't work that way. 
if you're talking about evolution and, and the, the so-called educated sociologists and psychologists and all these people that have more degrees than they're just ask them about circumcision. Ask them. I mean, it proves evolution to be wrong. But Antichrist, the prince of Tyre, will die the death of the uncircumcised. This implies that he ought not to die such a death because he is of the circumcision. He is a Jew. Now, we'll see what this means. It says in the Bible that Antichrist is ultimately broken without hand and he's destroyed by the brightness of the Lord's coming. Here it says he's... He dies the death of the uncircumcised. Okay? It says that he dies... Um, I just lost the, the wind. Uh, by the hand of strangers. Now that's not a contradiction. Antichrist will die. He'll die by a sword. But he'll come back to life. Pseudo-Messiah. We'll see that later in Revelation 13. But he dies the death of the uncircumcised. Saying, implying that he's not, I mean, he's not uncircumcised. He's circumcised because he's a Jew. Daniel chapter 11 gives us further clues about his Jewish stock. Daniel chapter 11 speaks of Antichrist in detail. Look at verse 37 through 38. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. So his father had a God that he won't regard. Nor the desire of women. Women won't have any power over him like it does over every natural man. Won't have any power over him. Probably a homosexual. That's what that means. Nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. This is written to Israel. A map. They ought to recognize him when he comes, but they won't. Just like they didn't recognize Christ when he came. But Israel is told that Antichrist won't worship the God of his fathers. That's a subtle reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he will reject. If he's not a Jew, why does it say that it's the God of his fathers? That doesn't make any sense. In Ezekiel 21, Antichrist is referred to as the king of Babylon. Now we know this is prophetic because the king of Babylon never was a Jew. He was never also a prince of Israel. If you read this chapter, the time frame in which it is fulfilled is given us in verse 25. There's a shadow fulfillment in Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon, but its ultimate time frame is told us in verse 25. It tells us when this judgment will happen. It's a day when iniquity in Israel shall have an end. When is it that the iniquity in Israel will have an end? When Messiah comes back. That's the end of Daniel's 70 weeks, when these transgressions shall have an end. And in that day, what is the king of Babylon called? In verse 25, Thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end. Thus saith the Lord God, Remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he whose right it is come, and I will give it to him 
Whose right is the crown? Yeshua. And the one that parades with the crown is the king of Babylon who's also called the wicked, profane prince of Israel. It's a Jew. He's a profane prince of Israel. There's no qu- is there any question in your mind? Now if we look at the di- different... I want to get through this. So, Oh man, it's getting late. I think I'm going to end here today. Um, Antichrist is a Jew or will be a Jew of Jewish stock. But I, and I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but I don't believe he'll be Israeli at all. There's a diaspora still in the world today. The American Jew is very different than the Israeli. The liberal, communist, American Jewish people that have no care whatsoever for the nation of Israel and its preservation, who vote for all these wicked, liberal Jewish, I mean, liberal leaders who in their hearts hate Jewish people. It's foolishness. They're of a different stock. They're the children of Abraham and we should pray for them. We should love them. Because they're the children of Abraham. But they're, it's a different. It's very different. I think about most American Jewish people are kind of like the Jews that stayed back in Babylon. It's different. I don't believe Antichrist will be an Israeli. But he will be a Jew. If you ask my opinion, I believe he'll be an American Jew. And I have a reason for thinking this. Um... And when we look at some passages regarding Antichrist, we learn that he comes out of the old Roman Empire. He comes out of the Greek part of the Roman Empire. He comes out of the Syrian part of the Greek part of the Roman Empire. He's called the Assyrian and he's called the King of Babylon. So how can he be all of these things be a Jew? Well, he sure can't be an Israeli. What is Babylon today? Politically, spiritually, governmentally. It's this country. And did you know that there's a person uh, that was living in New York, a rabbi that died. I think he died in 1994, Rabbi Schneerson. There's a sizable group of religious Jews that really believe he's the Messiah, that he'll come back. So, if Jesus is the Messiah, Messiah can't come once, die, and come again. No way if it's Jesus. But if it's Rabbi Schneerson, well, he can't. There is two comings of Messiah. He can die and come back. That's what the Bible teaches. But it's funny because you travel around Israel today. This Rabbi Schneerson, this old man, there's stickers of him all over everything, and he's just—he's got his penguin outfit on. He's just waving, and it's the cheesiest thing I've ever seen. But these—he's dead. He's been dead for twelve years, and there's people that think he's the Messiah. And that he's coming back. He's an American Jew, lived in New York, or he was born somewhere else, but he came and lived in New York. So it's funny that even today there's an example of Jewish people following a dead American Jewish person and think he's a Messiah. So we see these things. Uh, he never claimed to be, of course, but they believe it. He's um, known for uh, liking this particular song this Jewish praise song, and it said, we want Messiah now, we don't want to wait. We want Messiah now, we don't want to wait. What does that sound like to you? We want a king now. Give us Saul now, we don't want to wait. Give us Antichrist, we want a king now. We don't want to wait. We want a Messiah now. Isn't that man? And God forbid we sit here and stand in judgment on the Jewish people because we're just like them. We're just like that. 
We've got an example we should learn by. That's why God gave us the history of Israel. But like them, we won't learn by it. We're just like it in the church. We're worse. We don't want Jesus. We want another Jesus. We want to be, have the ears tickled. But these things, when we study them in Scripture, they reveal to us our character. They reveal to us things we need to repent of. They reveal to us how we need to cry out to God. They re- reveal to us how we should seek to have discernment so we're not deceived by the spirit of Antichrist where well, we can see it in the churches today. So, um, I'm going to finish up. This is going to become a part three, I guess, before we get into the text. But something given this much attention in Scripture is worthy of a few Sundays. So um, next time we'll get into a little more about the Jewish nature of Antichrist, when he was here on the earth before, and what must happen before he is revealed. His Spirit is here, but some things must happen before he is revealed. And these things give us cause for rejoicing as the followers of Jesus Christ.